97 South's Storytellers features conversations with professional songwriters and seeks to pull back the curtain on the art, craft, and career of songwriting. We'll bring you to those magical moments of creativity that have delivered the inspiring songs that make up the soundtrack of our lives. Hi, I'm Paul McGuire, and today's guest is Jim Valance. He is a member of the Order of Canada and is one of the most successful songwriters in the world whose long association with global star Brian Adams has produced an incredible track record of mega hits, such as Summer of 69, Heaven, and Cuts Like a Knife. BC native, songwriter, producer, arranger, Jim Valance's discography reaches into every corner of the soundtrack of our lives, including hits for Heart, Aerosmith, Alice Cooper, Kiss, Bonnie Raitt, and Canada's own Glass Tiger. Jim's accolades which are too numerous to mention, describe the highest level of artistic and commercial achievement and will culminate this fall in his induction into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame. Good day, sir. Hello, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Can't complain. Thanks for doing this. We're going to get into so much here today, Jim, but to hit home runs as many times as you did, did you crack a code? Is there a code to be cracked? I mean, I think if you ask somebody like, you know, David Bowie or... You know, they, they say there are no rules, and if there were, they're there to be broken. But I just had a couple of things that I sort of discovered early on and then have adhered to ever since. And uh, I don't think it's necessarily formulaic, but as a songwriter, well, well, the first thing is, as a songwriter, you have to choose whether you're going to do it as a hobby and make no money or right. do it for a living and, and have it be hopefully your your source of income. And so to connect those dots, to do it for a living, you have to make some money at it. And to make some money at it, you have to sell some records. And to sell some records, you have to get your songs on some records. And to get your songs on some records, where you know typically uh, there's maybe 10 or 12 spots. And often, like in my experience with Aerosmith or other bands, there's about 30 songs to choose from before they go in the studio. So yeah. to get your song one of the 12, and therefore sell some records, make some money, buy some groceries, not have to have a real job, you've got to check a few boxes. And the main thing I've always tried to do is make sure the title is paramount. In other words, after you listen to the song, not even the whole song, if you listen to the first verse, the first chorus, and stop the tape, then ask someone, what's the title of the song? If, if they can't answer that question, you haven't done your job. So real overt examples of that are, say, yeah. Paul McCartney's song, Get Back. We've sung the title three times already in like two seconds. Or ACDC's Highway to Hell. There's absolutely no doubt what the title of that song is. And then to, to turn that on its head, uh, if you remember the song by Train, which was called Drops of Jupiter. Yes. Now, that Drops of Jupiter, that line appeared only once in the song as sort of a nondescript line of lyric. The song should have been called Tell Me. In fact, yeah. when the song became a radio hit, the record company quickly re-released the album with a sticker on the front that said, contains the, the hit song Drops of Jupiter, and then in brackets, Tell Me. So, yeah. so that was a bit of self-sabotage on the band's part to not put the title front and center. The song was still a hit because it was just so darn good. But, yeah, what's that line? What are you, scared of success? What's going on, guys? Come on. Well, yeah, yeah that, that's, that's, that's called never missing an opportunity to miss an opportunity. <laughs> um, but, you know, so I just always, you know, tried to not be formulaic or 
do paint my numbers songwriting, but I just have always believed and still believed that the title is the thing that the listener goes away with. And if the title can be not just memorable, but another strategy is um, alliteration, where you get, you know, like two S's, like summer is 69. You know, that's a, yeah. a, a good strategy for implanting a thought in the listener's brain. So it's a little bit of a game to be played because you're your listener, your record buying audience are the people you want to implant, you know, they call them earworms. Yeah. I mean, I've got a couple of songs going in my head right now, not my own songs, but just, they just keep playing over and over and they won't go away. Let me guess, Ed Sheeran? Uh, yeah, well, that's yeah. one of them. Yeah. yeah, I bet, yeah. yeah. So uh, again, just to answer your question, long answer for a short question. You know, it's the, a the podcast title. and it's long and I, I, we, the insight, I can't, I'm, by the way, totally not surprised that you've already told me something in the first few minutes of this podcast that I've never heard another songwriter tell me. That, wow. that the, the idea about stopping the song after a minute and asking somebody what the title is, if they can't tell you, then you've done something wrong or you maybe need to rethink your approach to it is incredibly insightful. I've never heard anybody say that before. Wow. That is, that to a degree, that is cracking the code a little bit. And I bet many of the songwriters you've talked to actually do that, but just haven't like self-articulated or consciously do it. Yeah. They're just doing it intuitively. And you said you hoped you weren't formulaic twice already. And I think, as is evidenced in your discography, there's nothing formulaic about the songs that you've written just by virtue of the variety of artists and the genres that you have spread your art across formulaic is not a word that comes to mind when you talk about Jim Valance. No, not a chance. Well, thank you. You said you've stuck to that. How did you discover that though? I know you started, and again, we'll go back to the beginning a little bit here because I believe started playing the piano when you were seven. That was the first yeah. instrument that you were introduced to. Did you like it? No, I hated it because you hated it, was it. Less, it, was, it was lessons and it was, it was tedious and the teacher was demanding and didn't make it fun. And many, many, many years later when I sent my son off to piano lessons. I made the same mistake. I sent him to uh, the Suzuki method of piano, which was very rigid. And, Strict, and, he, yeah. and he hated it. So I pulled him out of that and found another teacher who just made piano fun. I wish I had had a teacher like that uh, right out of the gate, age seven, because, you know, music I discovered was not fun. It made it not fun. So I, I basically ignored music for, you know, the next number of years. Uh, yeah. It just wasn't on my radar at all. Isn't that amazing? Whether it's in education, whatever discipline, if you're talking about history, the best movies that we've ever seen are based in history. And yet there are teachers that can make history incredibly plodding and boring. Conversely, there are great piano teachers who have the ability to show people the fun in something, in the sport, in history as well, if you have a great teacher. I started by asking you where you, how you discovered these things, like you said, many songwriters over the years may implement that technique of hoping that you can figure out the title of the song by listening to just a bar and a chorus. But how did you discover it? Do you remember a moment where you kind of were like, oh, yeah, that's important? I, I'm, you know, I don't remember the, the moment. I, I think as before I was a songwriter, I was a, a fan, you know, I, well, yeah. still, still a fan. But, you know, I, I listened to a lot of music as a teenager and decided I wanted to, to do that, that I wanted to, to write songs or make music. I didn't, I didn't know it would be a profession, but it just, it was, I was compelled. And I'm just guessing that I absorbed that, listening to, to pop songs in the 60s, which were, I mean, what an era. 
you know, the songs were just yeah. amazing all through the 60s. You know, Burt Bacharach and Brian Wilson. and Beautiful melodies. Yeah. yeah. So I, I'm sure that that just kind of, you know, came to me subconsciously, just implanted itself. But taking the experience of being inspired by that music and then implementing it into your own songwriting, that's, uh, it's tough to take it from the ether out there and then use that in your own art. You must have crashed a few times before you, uh, before you flew, right? Oh, sure. <laughs> I mean, well, listen, I mean, you were very kind off the top saying, you know, what a track record. But, you know, I, I mean, I, I had a fair number of hits over the years, but behind every one of those hits, there's like a, a dozen songs that never even saw the light of day. And I put the same amount of effort into every one of them. So, you know, there's a, a little bit of luck out there, too. I've never once sat down and tried to write a bad song. But, right. but some of them just don't, don't get there, you know. So, again, I think it's a volume thing. If you write every day, I think it was Norman Mailer, the author, said he just got up every morning and he would write from nine till noon. That was it. But he did it every single day. And some days he got stuff and some days he didn't. And I think that's, that's part of it, too, just putting in the, the hours and the work and the effort. The effort. I was going to say that's the word, I think. That is, oof, that is the word. Um, I have some days of abject frustration, I would imagine, where you're like, I don't know if I can do this. And then other days where it just seems so well, easy. I mean, I'm reminded uh, back mid 80s when um, Adams and I had been together for a number of years already. I mean, the first three or four years of our writing career were, were quite fruitless. I mean, we wrote a lot of songs, but we didn't have any success. It took him. I met him in 78. And Reckless's really big breakthrough album was 80, 84, 85. So, it, you know, it was no, not an overnight success. But, right. but when we were working on the Reckless album, uh, we got together every day at noon. Uh, we'd have a sandwich and a cup of tea. And then, say, 1 o'clock, we'd go down to my studio and we'd write till dinner time, 7, 7 o'clock maybe. Wow. We'd go have a bite of dinner down the road at the restaurant, come back and go to 11 or midnight. And it was usually... And neither of us wanted to be the one to say, you know, <laughs> I'm tired. I want to go home. We, we would just go until we were both exhausted and then come back the next day and do it again. And honest to God, we did that every day, including weekends for a year to, to write that wow. out. So it was and not every day was productive. Some days we got nothing. Some days we we got a, you know most of a song written, but we just did it every day, all day for a year. Were there moments um, where you looked at each other and, and wanted to throw in the towel? Or how did you manage to barrel through that? The, the obstacles, the roadblocks, the moments of frustration? I think it's almost like a sparring partner thing. You just, you don't want to, you know, like I said a minute ago, you don't want to be the first one to quit. And, right. and we, we just egged each other on and, you know. Uh, you ready to quit? I'm not ready to quit. Let's keep going. <laughs> yeah. you know, like that kind of thing. I love that. Sparring partner is a great analogy. Yeah. So it was great having that, the two of us in the room, just um, you know, when one guy was, was dry, the other guy had an idea and vice versa. And then oh, lots of times when we were both on fire, but it was just great having that uh, other person in the room to, to just keep you going. And, and Brian's a, unstoppable anyway. So he's yeah. remarkable. That's incredible. That just the, the, the fact that you guys found each other, and we'll get into that in a second, but if we could just go back again a little bit to, um, to your parents, I guess, and, and the piano lesson, and the, the beginning of your musical education, if you will, uh, your appreciation for it. I guess you said you were frustrated at the beginning with the piano, but um, then the rock and roll kind of thing hit with, with drums and guitar. 
right? And you became a multi-instrumentalist before, was this before, had you written a song at this point yet? Well, no, so I'm, I'm 11 years old. Okay. Um, grade five, music was not on my radar. So I had the piano lessons that was in the past. Uh, yeah. No interest, no interest in anything musical <laughs> at all. In fact, my interests were the New York Yankees, uh, Batman comics, and I loved insects. If you uh, had asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I would have said an entomologist. I, I, w- I wanted to study insects. I was fascinated by them. I still am. Praying mantises um, et al. Yeah. <laughs> the, whole, the whole thing. <laughs> but anyway, so just uh, another Sunday night, like uh, the family Sunday night would usually after dinner gather around the TV and we'd watch the Ed Sullivan show, you know, jugglers, comedians, whatever it was on. And he opened the show with, ladies and gentlemen from Liverpool, the Beatles. And it's like, I think my jaw might have dropped about six inches. And I was like, what? It's like, what? What is that? And I was mesmerized, captivated. I, I, I still haven't recovered from that moment. Seriously. It was just life altering. It was just like, oh, my God. I don't, I don't know who they are or what they're doing, but... I want to do that. Oh my God. I, that's so fantastic that that moment that people talk about so often as a seminal moment in music history is the moment that changed your life, literally changed your life. And so many guys my age and women that I know who were watching that same show that night yeah. who are now musicians, songwriters, you know, in, in the music in- industry in some way, shape or form. I mean, it was... It, it knocked a whole bunch of socks off a whole bunch of folks. Who was in the room with you when you were watching it? Uh, my parents. Your parents. Did they, did they recognize the impact that it had on you? No. No? No, it, it, they were oblivious. It was just... Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. quite something. That's quite something. Yeah, and, and I, I don't think they ever quite... I mean, it would have taken them a bunch of years. But so from that moment on, so I'm 11, yeah. and then the next morning... At, back at school, you know, on the playground, all anybody talked about was the Beatles the night before. That's that, that was all anybody talked about. Did you see the Beatles? Like, oh my God, everybody was was blown away. Uh, of course, not everybody became musicians, but everybody was, the, their lives were, were changed forever by that moment and what ensued over the next decade. But uh, probably around 11, 12, I started to beg for a drum kit or a guitar or anything. So suddenly now music is like everything to me. I'm just not, well, no, we took the bus downtown the next day or the day after to buy the Beatles single. Yeah. And, and then from then on, it was just uh, all I thought about was music. And as I say, begged for a guitar or a drum kit or anything. And I finally, you know, Christmas when I was 13, I got a guitar from my parents and a drum kit from my grandmother. So then, then I was like, off and running you know let's go grandma yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) she's like it doesn't have to be in my house (laughs) yeah truly (laughs) so did it go in the basement of your parents house yeah 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 well i mean i remember christmas christmas night like so we had christmas i got the guitar it's like wow you know and then i just i played the guitar all day and you know to sort of cliche literally till my till my fingers bled yeah. My dad came down out well after midnight and said, can you stop? You're keeping everybody awake. So the, the drums came later. The guitar was first. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they were in the basement and just became everything. To the point that one of my teachers 
my freight nine French teacher, Mrs. Morrissey, wrote in my report card, Jimmy's mind is never on a job. He can't drum his life away. <laughs> Still remember that, huh? That's pretty cool. Who yeah. were your partners in crime? Who did you invite over to, uh, to help make the cacophonies that no doubt uh, erupted from the basement? Well, so, you know, by the age of 13, I've got a guitar and a drum kit. Yep. And you just, you know, you, I was in a small town. It was uh, Vanderhoof, uh, British right. Columbia, which is a population of maybe 2,000. So a small high school, and you just kind of get to know who who the other guys are. You know, there was a, one fellow named uh, Woody Whitmore. He was uh, a year older than me. He had a guitar, and we would just spend every day after school in the yeah. So we would, we would play every day, the two of us. And then some other fellows came along and we formed a band and played high school dances. And, playing cover songs? Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, and none of, it, none of us could sing. So uh, it was all instrumentals, like uh, the Ventures, the Shadows, that sort of stuff. That's, that sounds like so much fun. It really does. It sounds like what, what a, a fun time. And you were just so passionate about it that it was obviously infectious. The people wanted to, they're like, like the energy this guy's got. Yeah, it was yeah. joyous. It was, yeah. you know, playing for the first time with another musician just two of us guitar and drums the moment was absolutely transcendent it was joyous and the whatever i felt in that moment with woody in the band room you know i i, I felt with steven tyler decades later it's the same joyous thing you know it just elevates you um when did you become a songwriter i started when i was around i think 14 15 started to just mess with some ideas just to see what was what was possible uh, my parents bought me a tape recorder just a little little tiny thing little reel to reel okay and um that was um kind of cool because i could i would put an idea down on tape and listen to it and, and sort of got interested in the idea of recording as well as writing so in order to have something to record uh, I think the first thing I ever recorded was maybe a cover. Like I think it was um, Sloop John B by the, by the Beach Boys. Okay. And then after that, I thought, why don't I write something of my own you know, to record? And so I, I started writing things so I could have something of my own to record. And that sort of continued all through you know, high school, you know, age 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. And then a couple of the things that I wrote when I was around 18 – Although they, nothing happened until I was in my mid-20s. But little fragments of songs from my late teens ended up on what was the first album by the band Prism a few years later. So, so I didn't write anything really good until I was maybe in my early 20s. But there were a few little snippets that uh, found a home later. That's awesome that you managed to hang on to them. Um because it's it's you know how many songs have been lost on hard drives or forgotten about on little little melodies that are on iPhones somewhere. It's nice that you were able to keep those. Well, interesting you mentioned that because there's a uh, Paul McCartney talks about how when he and John were writing uh, this is before there were cassette machines or you, you couldn't record it. He said right. someone uh, someone asked him how did you remember them? He said, well, if they were good, <laughs> we remembered them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and if they were, so imagine the songs they forgot. They forgot. Oh yeah. <laughs> Terrifying. What was, uh, what was a 14 year old or 15 year old Jim Valance writing about? Chicks? Yeah, of cars. course. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> girls. <laughs> it probably, right? Yeah, absolutely. Do you remember your first one? I mean, I don't know if there was a first I, one or your I, first. I, I, I do. I, yeah. I remember the first, the first song I ever wrote. 
and it was um, kind of uh, inspired by uh, the Beatles song "Good Day Sunshine," and and that Beatles song was inspired by "Love and Spoonful um, Daydream," and so a little bit of, of a Sergeant Pepper kind of a of a vibe to it, and it was it was called Marjorie, you know, um, uh, Marjorie, would you come with me? to the village green where we'll be seen together, you know? And then the chorus was, oh, Marjorie, oh, Marjorie. You know, so it's it, lovely. it wasn't, it wasn't great, yeah. but it was a, you know, first, first out, you know, first, first uh, effort. Marjorie's a, that's a, a very poetic name. It's a good one. And again, I was totally riffing on, I think, lovely Rita, you know, sure. by the Beatles and all, yeah. all of that, you know, just Neither trying to be yeah. a little, little, little whimsical. That's Mar- Marjorie's a good one though. You got you got three syllables there, ends with the e. Lots of things rhyme with that. It's great. Yeah, yeah. Sure. That's a good. Uh, and there was a Marjorie, obviously. There wasn't. There was no Marjorie. <laughs> there was no Marjorie. Oh, dashed, dashed. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, let's jump ahead to one of the most important um, relationships of your career. Um, you you guys are the. Uh, the Lennon and McCartney of Canada, I think, if I may be so bold as to say that, is your relationship with Mr. Brian Adams. A great sparring partner, obviously. Truly. He's, yeah. he's so talented and so, so tenacious. He's, How'd you he's meet? amazing. How'd you meet? I had been in this band Prism, and I had quit. So I was yeah. unemployed, no, no plan. And Brian had been in another band called Sweeney Todd, and he had quit. And I just met him one day. I was at the... Long on McQuaid Music Store in Vancouver, and Brian was in there, and a friend of mine introduced us, and we were each a little bit aware of the other, just from having both been in Vancouver bands. Right. And uh, we had a bit of a chat, and uh, what are you up to? Not much. What are you up to? Not much. And it's probably Brian who said, you know, why don't we get together? Uh, which we did a couple of days later, and literally never stopped. I mean, just for... We wrote a song the first day and just kept going. Isn't that something? Had you had um, moments of revelation with songwriting partners prior to Brian? Had you had moments when you were in a room and somebody else unlocked something that you had presented? Uh, you know what I mean by that? I know. I mean, I know. I'm yeah. sure you've, you've written a bunch of songs by yourself, but had you had that before you met Brian? That's an interesting question, and you know what? I I've honestly not thought of this before. I don't think I co-wrote with anybody before Brian. Oh. I, I think he was my first collaborator. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't think I co-written. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Your first collaboration is, yeah. is one of the, the most lasting songwriting partnerships in music history. That's quite something. Uh, yeah, and interesting you mentioned that, because yeah, I think up until then I had just written alone. Different vibe, right? In the years that I've talked to songwriters, there are very few who write on their own nowadays. It, it tends to be a collaborative endeavor more than a solo effort. Uh, what did you discover about yourself? Uh, that, what did Brian allow you to discover about yourself? Well, I, I think I discovered more about Brian right, okay. right out of the gate because I wasn't expecting him to be so talented. So I, I thought uh, I was going to be like the main songwriter and he was going to be the singer. Because again, I, I can't sing. So I've got to I need somebody to sing my songs. So, is so that prison, true? You can't sing? You know, it's not something you can learn. You, you either are born with that gift or, or you're, you're not. So I, my, I, It's my experience that true tone deafness is a real rarity. Most people can kind of carry a tune. 
Oh, I can sing. Okay. But but there's singing and then there's singing. I got you. You know, there, okay. there's like there's Don Henley and right. John Lennon and you know these amazing amazing voices that yeah. that are, are are rare and wonderful. So you can drop something down on a demo and not be not not ba- not be bashful about it. You're like, you know, Absolutely. here's this, here's the idea. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. I, I, yeah, absolutely. I can sing kind of in tune, but I don't have a, a, a voice that you'd, you'd want. You don't have a weapon like Brian. Truly. Yeah. <laughs> so I knew he could sing. Yeah. I didn't know he could write. I didn't know he was as all rounded as he was until we got in a room together. And then I was like, Oh, okay. So then that, I mean, we started like the bouncing ideas back and forth thing right from day one. So, uh, so I discovered that about Brian, that, that he was going to be, you know, not just the, the singer that I so desperately needed, but he was going to be my songwriting partner. And did it, did it expand your horizons? I know that's, that's a silly way to maybe put it, but were you like, oh my God, uh, this just turbo boosted everything I've already got? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, because we, we were both excited to have found each other. Um, again, the, you know, the two people in a room, you would think doubles the energy. But honestly, I think it like quadruples the energy. It's, it's just it's exponential. We, we just, um, the more I was inspired, the more he was inspired, and we just, just kept going on, on, that, on that role. Just, just somebody to challenge you a little bit, and for you, you challenged him a little bit, and so you kind of keep that thing going, like you said, the sparring part. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it was not competitive as much as, I think we had an unwritten kind of rule or Maybe we even articulated it, but it was, you know, there's no ego in this. The the best idea wins. So, you know, you can get precious. I've collaborated with songwriters who are extremely precious about their contribution. They would come up with something and then, my God, that was it. They would like fight for for their idea. Whereas Brian and I were never, never driven to just be the one whose idea got in the song. The best idea always won. And, and that, I think, elevated our, our, our songwriting. That's incredible. I'm wondering about the first time that you saw Brian perform one of the songs that you had written together live, and it captured something special. You're like, we did that. I wrote that with him, and he's up there performing it. And look at the reaction it's getting from the crowd. I don't remember the first time. That, that would be a bit of a stretch memory-wise. Yeah. It, would, it would have been like... 40 years ago, let's say. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but I do remember many occasions being in an arena with, you know, 20,000 people singing one of the songs he and I had written and, yeah. and just thinking, wow, that's, this is, this is kind of cool. It's, it's not, that never gets old. It's, it's, re- it's really special. This thing did not exist before we sat in that room on that rainy Tuesday afternoon and and, and brought out our guitars. It, and now look at what it's doing for people. They're coming together in, in celebration of this idea that we had. Yeah, it's moving. It's special. It's incredibly powerful, right? I mean, like you said, when you first started, you, didn't, you weren't thinking about this as a career. There must have been a point where you, you were like, yeah, this is, this is now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to attack this as a job, as a profession. Songwriting is now what I do. I remember a couple of moments, uh, yeah. a couple of pivotal moments. I mean, uh, my parents were really, I, I don't know if the, the, the word isn't supportive, but it's generous in that they let me stay out when I was like 13, 14. I was playing dances on, on the weekend 
And I drive to another town with the other guys in the band who were a little bit older than me. Maybe they might have been 16 or 17. Wow. Were, yeah, had, had to have dr- their driver's license, right? They had a driver's license. Yeah. So I, I drive with these guys. Uh, and sometimes they'd have a couple of drinks at the wherever we were. I mean, it was it was kind of dangerous, you know. But yeah. my, parents, my parents let me do that all through high school. You know, school dances, weddings, whatever else we were playing at, at anywhere we could we could get. And we, we'd get like five bucks to play a play a gig and, and yeah. we were we were thrilled gas money yeah, yeah yeah but then we got to so i'm 18 grade 12 it's like okay let's let's start talking about what university you want to go to and what you want to take and i said well i don't want to go to university i want to be a musician and it was like or no no excuse me <laughs> it was okay for a hobby but now we've got to talk you know about serious stuff here and i said i'm serious i'm serious i i want to be a musician and so my parents were horrified, and the compromise was, okay, I will go to university, but only if I can take music. They agreed to that, and so I went to the uh, University of British Columbia Music Department uh, for a year. I, I think I learned a few things, you know, but yep. it was not what I wanted to do. And during that year, I was in Vancouver, I found a part-time job at a recording studio for no pay. I was basically the... the uh, T-Boy, you know, that was kind of the beginning of working in studios and I got to know a few other guys my age and musicians and so on. And so then I do become a musician. So I'm, I'm now playing nightclubs in Vancouver and, you know, wedding receptions and bar mitzvahs and things here and there. I'm, I'm like making no money. It's really, really tough. So I'm in my early 20s. My rent's 75 bucks a month for a basement suite and some months I, I don't have it. So I remember one moment in particular, I think it was a wedding reception. I'm wearing a you know, black suit and a tie and uh, no drumsticks, only brushes because it's quiet. Right. And, you know, there's a, an organ, a saxophone, a bad singer and me. And, <laughs> and I remember I just had my head down looking at my snare drum and thinking, really, this is, this is what I want to do? <laughs> you know, yeah. I, was, I was despondent. I had no money. I did not enjoy what I was doing. And um, somehow I got past that moment and got with a better band and, and then things kind of started to, to happen. But yeah, there were some moments where I, I doubted my, my decision. Um, and, you know, I, I don't want and to And you're like, my parents, my parents are going to, oh my God, they're going to be, so I told you so, all that stuff. <laughs> oh, I, funny story. Right, right around that time, and and again, I mean, you, you wouldn't know it now, but I, I had like like yeah a beard and a lot of hair. I was a, a scruffy hippie, <laughs> and, and my um, elderly aunt invited me for dinner one night. And so we're around the dining room table, you know, aunts and uncles and cousins. And my aunt whispered to the person next to her, loud enough for everyone to hear, "When's he gonna get a job?" <laughs> 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 I mean, it was humiliating, uh, but yeah. she but she wasn't wrong, you know. So I, I did have that moment. It wasn't a moment; it lasted for a couple of years, where I really wasn't sure that I could could make a go of this, you know. But what I'd like to say is, I I was uniquely unqualified to do anything else, so I just I stuck with it. You used the word compelled before. You were compelled. I, I was. Yeah. But I, I I will admit that there were moments where I thought I just didn't have the impetus I did I was not I didn't believe 
you know, I lost belief even in my own, you know, ability to, to, to make this happen. I don't want to forget to ask you the, the time when you were in high school and your parents were letting you stay out really, really late and going out with the, the teenagers who had the car and the, the, the van and the drums and all that stuff. Did it work in school? Did people know that you were the cool guy in a band that was playing, that traveling around? Did it give you any street cred? You know what? I'm not sure. I think that the, the guys on the football team were cool. I don't think the musicians were okay. cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was, just, I was wondering about that. I'm like, he's in a band. That's cool. I was never cool. In no? School, ever. No, 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 no. <laughs> Never. Oh, my goodness. Um, okay. Earlier, we started off the podcast and we were kind of like going a little inside baseball on the song, the idea of a song and stopping after a little while. And what, what is the, what's the title of the song? And that being very, very important. Uh, there's that intersection of art and commerce. Like you said, you have to, if you want to make money doing this, there's a little bit of um, maybe some uh, allowances we, we, need to, we need to make and some Compromise is probably a word that, that, that could be applied to creativity quite often. Putting songs together, you have to compromise. You said with your collaboration with Brian that the best idea always won out. You were never too precious about any one thing. Those all sound like very, very rational, level-headed characteristics that you have, which um, is not always the case in the music industry, is it? When you've got uh, artists who've got a message to get across. So many people have sung your songs. So many people have put your songs out there. I'm going to ask you to be reflective a little bit, if you don't mind. What do you think it is about about your particular brand of storytelling that is so transferable across genres, artists, genders, everything? It, it, you have an amazing ability to to appeal to a lot of different people, and uh, they want to sing your songs. What do you think it is about Jim Valance? I, I think I'm a good listener, for starters, um, a good observer, um, and... I mean, every artist I've, I've worked with, and there's been, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens, um, the idea is, you, you know, the end result is people hear your song and hopefully like it and go to the record store or go to the concert or, or somehow access your, your music. Yeah. But way, way, way before that, you're, you're just sitting in a room with no windows with another person and there's a blank sheet of paper. So the last thing on your mind really is uh, who's going who's gonna to want to listen to what we're doing. The first thing on your mind is let's write something that we like. You know, let's write something that pleases us, and then we'll see if it passes the, the long test. And further to that, depends who you're sitting in the room with. So if I'm in the room with Brian, or, or if it's Joan Jett, or Stephen Tyler, or Ozzy Osbourne, or any number of people I've, I've collaborated with, my job is to write something that that pleases them and works for them and will work for uh, their audience, their fans, and hopefully not looking necessarily back at their career for precedence, but looking forward to how can I take what they've already done and, and maybe add some value to it or you know contribute. I mean, I've, I have literally written a song for you know, Anne Murray on a Friday and, and Kiss on a Monday. So the, you know, changing gears is quite something. But at the end Arti of the day... Artistic whiplash. Yeah. It, it, it kind of is. But, <laughs> but you know what? It's, a song is a song. And I'm not saying Kiss could have recorded my Anne Murray song or Anne Murray could have recorded my Kiss song. They, they were each written specifically with that artist in mind. Um, 
but th- there's been songs that like Adams and I wrote a song for Stevie Nicks that I don't think she ever even heard, let alone recorded. But we we turned it around a little bit later and gave it to Roger Daltrey and he did it. So, wow. so you know, sometimes you, you can be very specific in targeting who you're writing for and, and therefore what you write. And other times a song can be not generic, but, you know, a, a, a cover and cast a wide enough net that if, uh, well, Run To You, Brian's song, Run To You, starts with a riff. You know, we wrote that for Blue Oyster Cult, um, trying to, we thought, because their famous riff, you know, Don't Fear the Reaper, um, we thought, okay, let's write, a, uh, let's find a riff that Blue Oyster Cult will love, and then, we'll, you know, they'll record our song. So we wrote Run To You, and uh, it was, we were actually asked, our, our friend Bruce Fairburn was producing them, so Bruce said, Can you, do you have a song for Blue Oyster Cult? So we wrote Run To You and sent it off, and they, they didn't like it. So, so now we've got this song. Okay, what are we going to do with it? Oh, my and God. So, so, we sent it, so we sent it to a 38 special, a Southern rock band. Yep. And, and they didn't like it. And so I don't know how much longer, maybe, maybe they, because we'd written it for somebody else, Brian didn't see it as a song for him. And it was kind of a last-minute uh, addition to his Reckless album and ended up being a big hit for him. But my point is we wrote it for somebody else altogether but it managed to you know find its find a home and i've got lots of examples like that songs that didn't fly maybe a year or two later found a home what a wonderful little sliding doors moment that not little huge sliding doors moment that is the fact that it was turned down by 38 special and blue oyster cult and became arguably one of brian's signature songs yeah truly thanks for listening this has been storytellers Join me, Paul McGuire, live this summer with Kim Mitchell, Glass Tigers' Alan Frew, 5440's Neil Osborne, and many others for an experience you'll remember always. The 97 South Song Sessions Songwriters Festival is happening this July, the 21st to the 23rd, in Penticton, British Columbia's incomparable wine country. An intimate, bluebird-style music performance that features songwriters in the round, playing their hits and relating stories of a life in music. Tickets and information at 97southsongsessions.com. Download the free Stingray Music mobile app and listen to the 97 South Song Sessions channel today. Stingray Music, life's on you, music's on us.